Welcome to the Borderlines Podcast. I'm uh, Peter Edelman. I'm Steve Mirens. I'm Deanna Okanachoff. Uh, and we're here today with uh, Professor Kent Roach from the University of Toronto. Uh, we're very fortunate to have uh, Kent here with us. Uh, he's a uh, professor in the Pritchard Wilson Chair in Law and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Uh, he's here speaking at the Trudeau Conference uh, with um, uh, on national security issues. Kent is one of the big figures in national security in Canada and has been for many years. Uh, he was involved uh, probably before then as well, but uh, in, in terms of his more prominent roles in the Air India Commission as the uh, research director in the Arar Commission. Uh, these are all things that we're going to explain and talk about as we go along and hopefully have some uh, some discussions. As uh, in more recent uh, years, both uh, Kent and uh, Craig Forsyth at the University of Ottawa have really taken the role of public scholar to new levels uh, in engaging in the discussion around Bill C-51 uh, and around the changes in uh, national security law in Canada. Uh, a lot of the work that they did in writing, essentially publicly writing a book uh, together in a very collaborative way uh, that really engaged the discussion around C-51 and culminated in False Security, which is a book that's now out from Irwin Law, I believe. Yes. Uh, and um, and they've now in the currently we have uh, the Minister of Public Safety uh, and the, the current government has put out a green paper. Uh, on uh, the discussion around national security reform. Uh, and uh, Craig and Kent have put together uh, one of the more comprehensive uh, responses to that paper. And so we're hoping uh, to have a discussion today about that. So welcome, Kent. Well, thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me. And that's a very generous introduction, and I didn't even write it. So. Thanks. <laughs> um, the... Uh, so part of, uh, just in terms of framing our discussion today, I think what might be helpful to our listeners, uh, can we maybe start with, let's start with how we got here. Um, so can maybe if we can go back to the McDonald Commission, so uh, maybe we can explain what the McDonald Commission was and, and what flew, flowed from that, because uh, I think that kind of starts the explanation, at least in my mind, as to as to how we got into the situation where we are today. Sure, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to discuss that, Peter, and I'll also... Uh, weave in, I guess, a little bit of personal history, if 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 you uh, let let me. Uh, uh, the story of the McDonald Commission, I guess, really starts with the October crisis in 1970, where we had two cells of the FLQ uh, um, uh, do uh, kidnappings, uh, one murder, uh, and you know, really made Canadians alive to the issue of terrorism. Uh, then, leading up to 1976, uh, of course, was the Montreal Olympics, and we all know what happened at the 1972 Munich uh, Olympics. And, and basically, after the October crisis, the RCMP really went rogue, and uh, the security service, which was the specialized branch of our national police force, um, um, engaged in all kinds of illegal disruptions uh, in an attempt to make sure that there was no act of terrorism at the 1976 uh, Montreal uh, uh, Olympics. Uh, you know, probably the, the best known is that they had a 
intelligence that someone from the FLQ was going to meet with the Black Panthers at a barn and they couldn't uh, get surveillance on the barn so they burned the barn down. Uh, and so the McDonald Commission and there was also a Quebec Commission uh, was, was really looking at RCMP illegalities during this period and it was out of that that the McDonald Commission said well you know basically uh, we need a civilian uh, security intelligence uh, force and it needs to be uh, subject to uh, to a high level of uh, review and scrutiny. I'm just going to ask before people all rush to Wikipedia were there people in the barn when they burned it down? <laughs> no. No, no. I mean, I mean, I mean. Thank, thankfully, there, there, there weren't. But, but it is this kind of, uh, uh, and, and and Craig and I talk about this in our book that you know, with, with with terrorism, you're always going between a kind of overreaction and an underreaction. And so the barn burnings, and you know, indeed, what happened during the October crisis when martial law was declared and people were detained simply because they believed in the separation of Quebec uh, is an over overreaction. So come 1984, the government acts on the McDonald Commission recommendations, tells the RCMP you're out of the security intelligence business, gives it to this new agency, which is called CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. And uh, unfortunately, a year later, we have uh, perhaps the most dramatic act of underreaction with respect to terrorism, and that's, of course, when bombs were placed uh, on two Air India flights from this city in Vancouver and uh, uh, exploded, uh, eventually killing 331 people. And so one of the problems uh, with with CSIS uh, when it was born was that it saw itself very much as a cold war uh, intelligence agency not concerned with supporting uh, criminal prosecutions and of course that's the infamous uh, um, erasure of the surveillance tapes on the prime suspect in the Air India bombing uh, and CSIS did that not not not, not because they were necessarily hiding something, but they just thought that an intelligence agency really shouldn't uh, be concerned with the knock-on effects of the intelligence in a, in, 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 in a criminal prosecution. So CSIS, the Canadian Securities and Intelligence Services, what can that be thought of for those who are more familiar with the American agencies? Like, Is that like an FBI, a CIA... Well, I mean, I mean, you know, the, the Americans, uh, perhaps, you know, fairly unusually uh, among uh, established democracies, uh, only allow their intelligence agency, the CIA, to operate offshore, or at least they're supposed to operate only offshore. So uh, it is uh, probably more like the CIA than it is like the FBI. But of course, in 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 the United States, the FBI actually does. What in Canada is done by at least two different agencies, the police and CSIS. And so, uh, as we move forward with the creation of CSIS, I mean, we have a couple of other players that have come into, uh, when we look at the overall picture, um, two of the other big agencies that are generally discussed are the, the CSE, uh, the, the Communication Security Establishment, 
uh, of Canada um, and the CBSA, the Canada Border Services Agency. Do you do you want to maybe give us a, a picture of how, how did all these pieces sure. fit together? Yeah. Uh, and then maybe we can have a discussion about um, sure. the the oversight mechanisms. But I, and, and maybe I'm missing some pieces, but those are the, the four big ones in my mind in any event. That, yeah, yeah, no, and, and, and so basically what we're seeing is, is after 9-11, uh, most countries take a whole-of-government approach to security, and so basically this means that every agency, whether it's the people who ask you at customs why you're coming into a country, what you have to declare, that's, that's CBSA, the Canadian Border uh, uh, Service, or our kind of ears in the sky, the Canadian version of the NSA, which is CSE, the Communication Security Establishment, all, all, all of these agencies are working where they're supposed to be working uh, with respect to the prevention of, of terrorism. The problem, and, and this was you know, one that, that uh, the Arar Commission looked at fairly intensely, the problem is that while governments are trying to knock down walls between agencies and have a whole-of-government approach to security, the reviewers and oversight tend to still be in agency-based and ministry-based silos. And so, you know, for, for example, the, the, you know, the RAR Commission was an extraordinary commission in that it was given jurisdiction over all Canadian officials who touched Mr. Arar's case. And, 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 and just for, for those who are not familiar, Mr. Arar uh, was a Canadian citizen uh, who uh, uh, was, you know, a, a part of a, a terrorism investigation right after 9-11. Information was given both through customs and policing officials to the Americans. The Americans hauled him off a plane when he was coming back from a business trip uh, in New York, held him for, I think, about 10 days, and then put him on a private jet where he ended up in Syria, and he was tortured in the torture chambers in uh, in uh, in Damascus. And so one of the things the Iraq Commission was able to do was follow the trail. So the trail started with CSIS, which handed off the file to the RCMP after, uh, after 9-11, but it also went to the customs officials who were, doing, who were given false uh, information suggesting that Mr. Arar and his wife were members of Al-Qaeda. Justice O'Connor looked at this for two years, found no evidence to support that. But once, once that false information gets out, it flows throughout the Canadian government and then also flips over to the American government and was probably used by the American government both to detain Mr. Arar and then to render him to Syria where, uh, unfortunately, he was tortured. Um, and so in terms of the, the current situation, I mean, we've got these three agencies. So the Minister of Public Safety um, under either directly or, or indirectly under the Minister of Public Safety, we have the RCMP, the Policing Service, the Canada Border Services Agency, and uh, CSIS. Yeah. Um, now, the CSE is in a different domain. 
Um, do you want to explain why that is? What's what's the what's yeah. happening there? In yeah. Terms of well, I mean, as as in the United States, the CSC is actually more in the military domain, and that's because it is supposed to be only uh, directing its uh, its uh, ears in the sky at foreign threats. The problem is that with modern technology, if you send me an email today, uh, it may very well get rooted through the United States, even though we're both uh, communicating to each other in Canada. So, but 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 you know the 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 big question is uh, uh, that how how do we ensure that there is effective review of these integrated national security activities. And, and what the Justin Trudeau government has done is um, with Bill C-22, it's proposing to give parliamentarians access to secret information. And, and that's something that uh, I certainly support. Um, in you know, it's almost embarrassing that uh, Canada is uh, you know really the only democracy that I'm aware of that doesn't allow parliamentarians to have access to secret information. And I mean, you have to realize that you can't you can't really do any intelligent review of national security without looking at at least some uh, secret information because Canada really all countries, but I think Canada is maybe worse than some countries. We, we like to stamp things top secret. Um, and so uh, the Trudeau government's response is uh, to create uh, this, uh, this new committee uh, where parliamentarians will uh, really for the first time unlike, say, ministers, uh, have access to secret information. But that, that comes with a price. So we don't quite trust our parliamentarians. And, and, and frankly, one of the reasons why we've never given parliamentarians access to secret information actually goes back to the October crisis and goes back to Quebec separatism because we, you know, there, there's always been a concern of, well, you give someone from the Bloc Québécois information, I don't know, maybe they're going to give it to, you know, some foreign uh, 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 place. But, but uh, under Bill C-22, once it's enacted, uh, the parliamentarians who have access to secret information will be subject to, to our version of the Official Secrets Act, which, which means that if, and, and, and they will not be able to rely upon parliamentary privilege as a defense. So, so we're going to allow them to have access to secret information, but in a fairly tight controlled way. Another problem in Bill C-22 is that the minister has not only a, a discretion to prevent what the committee can make public, but potentially even a discretion as the bill is written right now. It's, it's, it's before Parliament, and uh, I think two weeks ago we testified before one of the parliamentary committees about this. The minister can say, that's a no-go area. So, for example, if, if the parliamentary committee wanted to examine how CSE, to go back to 
the eyes and ears in the sky was working with NSA or some of the other allied agencies and the ministers wanted to say well no no this 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 is just too sensitive uh, un- under bill C22 they could say well you're not going to look at that particular aspect of national security activity so C22 will help uh, I think it could help a lot more but one of the things that it doesn't do is it doesn't allow when CSIS and the RCMP work together uh, or when they work with CBSA, which in some ways I think we want them to work together, the reviewers, the, the people that can hear complaints and that can, 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 can review the day-to-day operations of these agencies, they can't really talk to each other when it comes to uh, exchanging secret information. And so, I mean, as a citizen, you have to wonder, uh, why is it that governments want uh, executive watchdog reviewers to be one step behind the agencies? I mean, to some extent, that's inevitable. But once you get into these kind of silos, it becomes very hard to have uh, effective integrated review that matches integrated security activities. Uh, so just to just to give a quick overview of what currently exists, and, and maybe you can correct me if my understanding is wrong, but right now, so CSIS has its own review. Uh, so the uh, um, it, it has a review service yeah. that is limited to CSIS. Yes. So the CSE has a review commission commissioner that's limited to the CSE. Right. And then the RCMP has a complaints commissioner that's limited to the RCMP, and CBSA has nothing except for the president of CBSA and the minister of public safety. Exactly. And now you and and Craig in your materials talk about these uh, review mechanisms being both what you refer to as stovepiped and siloed. Um, do you want to just explain what you mean by that? And what, what I just want to clarify what the current situation is, yeah. and then uh, obviously uh, some some discussions about where we're going. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, stovepiped and siloed just means that the the CSIS reviewer and you know a number of them have been very frank about this. They can follow. Uh, they can see any secret information within CSIS, but once CSIS throws something over the fence to CBSA, or once they throw something over the fence to the RCMP, then the CSIS reviewer is blind. And so what you have to remember is that, you know, for, for individuals like Mr. Arar, or really for any, any citizen, the issue is not what one agency does, it's what happens to you. How, how does the government, as a whole, treat you. And so, you know, one of our concerns uh, is that C-22 could have been a much better bill if if it had introduced the parliamentary committee, but also said, just like that parliamentary committee, because the parliamentary committee will not be stovepiped. It, it will not be siloed. The parliamentary committee, like the Iraq Commission, can look at anything that affects national security. And that, to me, is, is a positive thing. But C-22 could have been a much better bill if 
they had created in the BC Civil Liberties Association was really way, way uh, ahead of, of this in terms of recommendations, what is sometimes called a super CERC. And CERC is just the acronym, we don't really need to get into it, for the CSIS uh, viewers. But the idea of a super CERC, and we're seeing this in other democracies, is basically you allow an executive watchdog reviewer to follow the trail of national security and follow the trail of intelligence wherever that leads. And in a modern world, that's going to go from one agency like CSIS over to CBSA, over to the RCMP, over to citizenship, over to foreign affairs. So you have to have someone that can kind of follow that trail. Now, the parliamentary committee, in theory, can do that. But you have to realize parliamentarians are busy, busy people. They're not necessarily expert. They don't do this on a, you know, 9 to 5, uh, 52 uh, week uh, a year basis. So, I mean, I think it's good that, that, that they're going to be dealt into the secrecy tent, but they need to be able to have reviewers with the same whole of government mandate that the committee has. So one of the, I mean, we've talked about now accountability within the um, national security realm. I think one of the interesting aspects of Bill C-51, which was the Harper government's uh, national security bill that uh, came into force uh, or was enacted as a response to the um, parliamentary shootings I think in 2014 or 13, 14, October, 2014, October, 2014 was that, uh, for a lot of people, it seemed like maybe before when it came to accountability, they thought to themselves, well, when am I ever going to possibly be implicated under national security legislation? And bill C 51 caused a lot of concern over, uh, possibly broadening of what constitutes terrorism as well as the advocacy of terrorism offenses, which is a, a section in your paper. So I was wondering if you could speak to uh, what the offenses that Bill C-51 introduced regarding advocacy of terrorism offenses and why uh, so many Canadians viewed this as problematic. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, it, 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 it's it's important to, to note that Bill C fifty one was introduced not in Parliament but in an, in an election style rally by then Prime Minister Harper in January thirtieth. 2015, and, and, and Craig and I knew that there would be legislation, but frankly, we never expected anything as far-reaching or, as we argue, as radical as C-51. So there's there's about four different elements of C-51 that, that, I, that people should be aware of and, in my view, should be concerned about. One is... This has an information sharing law, which is not limited to terrorism. It's and 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 it has the most broadly defined definition of threats to security of Canada that Craig and I had ever seen. So, for example, if you're here in BC and you're doing something that is deemed to be a threat to the national security of China, that gets you within the information sharing provisions of Bill C fifty one. 
And C-51 allows uh, really every federal agency to share any security information that relates to this broad definition of security with at least 17 different agencies, including the ones that we've all talked about, but also others that, like CBSA, are subject to no in independent review except maybe the privacy commissioners. So one of the things that C-51 does is sets up this very broad information sharing law. And of course, um, you know, that that's relevant to other parts of the Green Paper where, you know, just this week, uh, the RCMP is basically out effectively lobbying for legislation that will allow them to get subscriber data or what's sometimes called metadata uh, without a warrant. And what people may not recognize is that once they have that information, then the information sharing provisions of C-51 kick in and means that that information can flow fairly easily through the Canadian government and may, uh, you know, as we saw in ARAR, may also flow to other foreign um, agencies. So the, the information sharing law of C-51 is uh, extremely broad and the Green Paper you know, I'm not terribly optimistic that the government wants to fundamentally reform that. I mean, one of the things that Craig and I say about the Green Paper is it's the bureaucratic defense of C-51 that the Harper government didn't allow the bureaucrats to make uh, in 2015. So, 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 so that, that's, that's one part. The second part of C-51 and this goes back to what we've been talking about in terms of barn burning uh, and the history of Canadian national security, is it allows CSIS for the first time not only to collect intelligence, which was its sole mandate from 1984 to 2015, but also to take measures to reduce threats to the security of Canada, including disruption measures that could violate the law and could violate the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, our Bill, Bill, Bill of, of Rights. And so, you know, basically, this is a radical rewriting of uh, CSIS's job description. And CSIS has only had these powers since mid-2015, and we already know through its, 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 its watchdog that it's exercised them over 24 times. But we don't know what it has actually done. I mean, is it burning barns? Is it uh, disrupting websites? Um, uh, is it disrupting travel arrangements as a way to prevent people from leaving Canada to, to go to Iraq or Syria or to prevent people from coming home uh, from Iraq and, and, and Syria. So our, our concerns about C-51 was that it rewrote CSIS's job description in a pretty fundamental way, but also it was a bit of a blank check. 
So the only restraint on what CSIS can do uh, under C51 is that it cannot um, um, intentionally uh, subvert the administration of justice and it can't it, uh, um, invade bodily or sexual integrity. But other than that, Everything is on the table, including every charter right. And, uh, um, you know, the government's defense, and to some extent, you see the Green Paper repeating this, is don't worry, because if CSIS is going to violate a law or violate a charter right, it's going to have a warrant from the federal court. And the government's argument is that that's just like a search warrant. But in our view, that kind of fundamentally misconceives what a search warrant is. A search warrant is not a warrant that allows you to violate the charter. It's a warrant that says because the police have established reasonable grounds to believe that there's evidence of crime in your house, the police can go into your house without violating the charter. And so, you know, basically what we're seeing here is that the judiciary is being asked to be enablers of illegality. And and not only illegality, but charter violations. And to us, that's uh, that that's a kind of topsy turvy world. That's that's not the way the legal system is uh, supposed to 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 work. So we so information sharing and new CSIS disruption powers uh, are, I I think, the two most uh, dangerous parts of C-51. You also mentioned the new terrorism offense. So C-51 created our 15th terrorism offense, and this is knowingly advocating terrorism offenses in general. And one of the problems is we don't know what terrorism offenses in general is. Um, it, it, it seems like it's designed to be broader than simply terrorism offenses. But even if it's limited, and, and the Green Paper suggests that it is limited to terrorism offenses, despite the rather plain language of the statute, that means that if someone says, you know, I think every person should give money to X group, that's a listed terrorist group, then they are knowingly advocating a terrorism offense. And, 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 and so that obviously has the implications uh, with respect to freedom of expression. So you mentioned before that there was a, uh, a watchdog had said that CSIS had used its threat reduction powers 24 times, but that it wasn't clear what CSIS had done. The watchdog, I guess, doesn't know. How do they know that they did it 24 times? No, I mean, I mean the watchdog knows what's done, but the watchdog, and, and this goes back to the issue of secrecy, the watchdog presumably agreed with CSIS that we can't tell people what was done because that will, you know, somehow impede CSIS's ability to continue to uh, conduct these disruption um, Efforts. Is it, this, this brings me to, to another question. We recently got a decision from Justice Noel um, in a case where CSIS had asked for a warrant um, and had renewed the warrant several times and, and gotten this warrant to collect information from, and it sounded like it was to collect phone calls. 
um, over the course of 10 years. And they were collecting, they were told to delete the phone calls or the content of the phone calls, I guess, that weren't relevant or it's unclear exactly what the scope of the deletion was, but they were supposed to, to delete the content of the phone calls. And they then had an interpretation of the law, which was, according to Justice Noel, quite questionable. And they kept all of the metadata. Um, And they stored that indefinitely over the course of 10 years and then didn't bother to tell Justice Noel. And he was rather unhappy about that. Um, Now... We also got that in the report, and, and reading the CERC reports is always um, a, a challenge in extremely concise and vague language mm-hmm. that people spend a lot of time reading into. So the entire CERC report for 2016 is 32 pages, of which most of it is graphics and uh, different nice colored fonts. And in the end, the actual content could probably fit onto five pages of, uh, you know, singles or double spaced pages. Um, but one of the things that was in there was this indication that there was mass collection of metadata and also ingestion of, uh, what sound like rather large databases that CSIS was taking the position that they could collect. And um, so there were a couple of things that came out of this for me in terms of my questioning about this. And, and one of the issues for me is, and we saw this in the States as well, in terms of what came out of the interpretations that were being given to uh, different words in the legislation by the FISA court, which is the, the court that the NSA goes to to get their warrants. Um, and that there's this whole body of secret law or secret interpretations of law that have significant implications for the rest of us. And I'm, I'm wondering about, I understand the rationale for keeping secret the content of the warrants or the, uh, what these phone calls that were being, uh, whose phone was being tapped or whose phones were being collected. I'm having a lot of trouble wrapping my mind around why the, the, not the legal advice that's being given, because I understand that's covered by solicitor client privilege and I, and I, I understand the reasons why government lawyers need to be able to give advice that's protected by solicitor client privilege to their client departments. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about interpretations of the law that are operationalized. In other words, we believe that metadata is not covered by Section 8. Despite the decision from the Supreme Court of Canada and Spencer, we can get into that argument. But let, setting aside all those arguments, yeah. why do the interpretations of the law that are operationalized need to remain secret? And, and what is the rationale for that from the agency's perspective? Because it seems like a, an issue of transparency. And when I read the Noel decision, I was, I, I was shocked by the same things that, that Justice Noel was shocked by, which was the lack of candor by the agency. But the other part that was very odd to me was why could these interpretations of the law not be made transparent? Why can't we know how the law is being operationalized 
in these secret contexts. And I was hoping you might have some insight in sure. terms of why that might yeah. be. Well, you know, I, I, I think some of it is the same reasons why the CERC reports uh, are relatively thin. And that is that CSIS is, you know, still, I think, very much in a Cold War sort of mentality where sources and methods, anything that could reveal anything close to sources or methods or uh, ongoing investigations just can't be made public. And of course, you know, the Arar Commission, unlike CERC, uh, 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 went to court and actually fought CSIS and the government of Canada about what could actually be revealed. So I think some of this is that Canada leans on the side of secrecy, uh, I think, too much. And one of the reasons that we do it is often it's not our own secrets. It's often secrets of other agencies because we're a net importer. But, I mean, the one kind of silver lining, and I mean, I, I, I agree that the, the Justice Noel decision, it's not only him, it, it actually every... Federally court, every federal court judge who hears these cases sat on bonk and, and, and then they delegated Justice Noel to actually write the decision. But, but this, this is an incredibly powerful judgment and, and in some ways it's surprising it didn't lead to the resignation of the CSIS director. But, um, um, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, one of the concerns is that um, the the CSIS is acting on what looks like very aggressive legal advice, and if that's sheltered behind both solicitor-client privilege and secrecy, we're never going to get to call uh, um, the government on that advice. One of the best parts about C22, which is the bill that we talked about on the new parliamentary committee, is the new parliamentary committee can actually get to stuff that is covered by solicitor-client privilege. So I think one of the really important things for the new parliamentary committee to do is to make sure that the legal advice that not only CSIS is acting on, but CBSA and, and every agency that's discharging secrecy, uh, 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 that, that, that's discharging um, uh, security responsibilities, to look at that advice to make sure that it's actually reasonable and responsible. And I also think that, you know, we in the law schools have to do more. Um, I mean, there's the ethics of national security lawyering. I mean, John Yu and JBB were kind of poster childs about what can happen when lawyers give irresponsible legal advice that say something isn't torture that most of the world actually considered to be torture. Do you want to just give some context as to who those people are? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I mean uh, John Yu and Jay Beebe were, you know, two very elite uh, government lawyers in the Bush administration after 9-11, and they were the joint authors of the so-called torture memos. And the torture memos were basically a legal interpretation that said you can do all 
almost anything that doesn't kill a person and it's not going to constitute torture. And that was an example of secret law until those were eventually leaked and then they had to be eventually declassified. But the government, much like the the CSIS advice, could for quite a long time hide behind the fact that, no, you don't get to see this legal advice, one, because of national security secrecy, and two, because of solicitor-client uh, privilege. And, 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 and these legal advices put glosses on fairly bare-bones bare laws that can expand them in, 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 in a dramatic and perhaps even terrifying way. So, I mean, the Justice Noel decision um, is, uh, um, you know, I think, a, you know, a hugely important decision uh, and people should read it. I mean, there's, there's, there's summaries of it available on the federal court website. And, and, and this is really, you know, I guess how the rule of law is supposed to, to work with independent judges telling the executive, you know, you just can't do, do this. So, and in the time uh, that we have left, I want to ask uh, or present a scenario, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm being just overly pessimistic, would be, um, so in 2009, Edward Snowden uh, makes public a lot of metadata collection and all sorts of activities that people didn't know about, and I'm sure is thinking, well, it doesn't seem too much came uh, from that. Meanwhile, in Canada, we had... Uh, the liberal government or the liberals while they were in opposition saying that Bill C-51 was abhorrent and the collection of all this information was bad. And now uh, in your paper, I note that you mentioned that in the green paper that they've put forward that they say that, well, you know, we need metadata, not just for terrorism, but for addressing pornography, cyberbullying, the dark web. Um, we also learned that it seems CSIS was, uh, to use Peter's term, less than candid with uh, the federal court as to what was going on. Is this just a case where, like, should Canadians, should we be resigned to the fact that uh, there is going to be more data collected, we are going to have less privacy, and even if uh, we're told that it's not happening, uh, we might, we should probably just, you know, accept that it probably is? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I think that that may be a touch too pessimistic. I mean, I, you know, I think some of it will depend upon how Canadians react to the Green Paper and how they react to the Justice Noel's de decision. I mean, if, if we all decide that we're too tired of this, if, if C-51 fatigue has set in, then yeah, you're probably right that we are going to have a lot less privacy. But as it is now, Right after the Noel decision, CSIS has now committed that they're not going to go back and mine that metadata that it was collecting, as you guys noted, for about 10, 10 years. So actually, they're, they're you know uh, that's kind of frozen. So that's a that's a kind of pro privacy. So I mean. Uh, you know, I think a lot of it is going to depend upon, you know, how active people are. And if people, you know, just think, think that this is inevitable, then yeah, it is going to be inevitable. Having said that, um, so, so that's my being more optimistic than you. Uh, I think I do have to, in a way, end on a relatively pessimistic note because, 
you know, our, our sense when we read the green paper, I mean, I mean, I mean you know, I, I, I want to be clear. I mean, I, I give the government credit for issuing the green paper because basically the previous government never got into the details and, 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 and really didn't think Canadians wanted that sort of information. But having said that, the green paper reflects the fact that once the agencies have powers, and of course C-51 has been law since the middle of 2015, once they get powers, they're not going to give them up without a fight. And so when you read the green paper, which was issued, I guess, in October, uh, I, I would say that uh, my overall impression was, um, you know, the government, when they legislate in response to the Green Paper, which will probably be sometime, hopefully, in 2017, although the government seems to have problems actually getting legislation out out the, the, the door, I would have been very pessimistic about how much of C-51 is actually going to be changed. So, I mean, in, in my own mind, I would have said, you know, it's about a 20% chance that we're going to have meaningful change to C-51. Then we have the events of last week where President Trump is elected. And the 20% chance that I see for meaningful reform to C-51 has probably been cut at least in half. Because the reality is that it is going to be very difficult to uh, sustain uh, the close economic and intelligence relationship that we need with the, with the United States if... Uh, if in 2017 the headlines in the American papers are, you know, Canada enacts a bill to take powers away from CSIS, or Canada enacts a bill that will make it harder to share security information. So the optics, I, you know, I mean, I mean, what 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 was an uphill battle uh, to get meaningful change to C51 has now become a extremely steep uphill battle going into a, a, a gale force wind. If I may, though, the, the question of, like, going back to the, the window of opportunity, mm-hmm. I think for those who who would like to capitalize upon yep. that window of opportunity, what, in your mind, does that even look like? Well, I mean, I mean the window of opportunity is, I think, I, I, I think the Department of Public Safety and, and the Green Paper is up on the Department of Public Safety website. They've extended the time to write in. And the government is t- carefully monitoring what people are actually saying. And I think that if people have concerns about this, go on to the website and let let the government know uh, what your concerns are. So, so I mean, I th- I think you're right that the you know the window of opportunity has not changed, and it might very well be that the government will say, look, this is a domestic matter for Canada, and we promised that we would repeal the problematic aspects of Bill C-51, which was uh, Justin Trudeau's promise. But the problem is, what are the problematic aspects? If you read the Green Paper, 
it suggests that you know next to nothing is problematic. If you read false security, uh, which is very reasonably priced, then uh, you're going to find uh, that our view, rightly or wrongly, is that most of C51 is problematic. And so I think is you know in some ways is going to be the Canadian people that really decide how much of C51 is problematic. All right. Well, I think on that note, we'll uh, I, I, I've. It's been a great discussion, so I know we could continue this discussion for uh, for a long time, uh, a, a lot more, and there's a lot more questions that I would have, and hopefully we'll have a chance to uh, continue this discussion if you're when you're back in Vancouver again. Uh, you know, please do let us know. Yeah. Um, as we said earlier, your uh, your latest book, uh, False Security, is uh, available from Irwin Law. Um, for those of you who are members of the uh, the bar in BC. You have access to false security through the reading room at the uh, BC Courthouse Library. Um, so that's that's available to all uh, BC lawyers and uh, to, to other people who have access to the to the BC Courthouse. But it's definitely uh, um, I, I have to thank you for the work that you and Craig uh, Forsyth have done over the past uh, couple of years. I mean, my. I know that for for myself, in terms of my engagement with C fifty one and with the national security discussion that's happened over the couple last couple of years, it wouldn't have been anywhere near uh, the level that it was without the work that the two of you have done. So, uh, on behalf of myself and everybody else who's been involved in this discussion, thank you very much. Thank 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 you very much, Peter, and, and also just for making time to discuss these these important issues. So, thank you very much. Thank you. And with that, thank you for joining us on Borderlines today. You can find us at borderlines.ca. You can also find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review. It helps other people to find the podcast. Thank you to Robin Bajer and Funk in the Trunk for our music, and to our podmaster, Makeli Higgins, who's helping us to up the level of our sound uh, for, the, for future podcasts. Woo!